Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. This is the Bill Press Show. Crisis on Air Force One. Call out the Secret Service. Somebody turned one of the TVs on to CNN and not Fox. It was Melania's TV. Lock her up. Lock her up. That's what Donald Trump said. Oh, my God. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It's Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, July 25. So good to see you today. Here we go. The Bill Press Show, man. We're going to be rock and rolling here for the next uh, two hours with all the news of the day. Again, never a dull day in Trump land. Mm-mm. So much to talk about yesterday. Uh, yeah, the president going out insulting the VFW by telling them nothing but uh, the same old lies that he tells everybody else. No message uh, to our nation's veterans other than fake news, fake news, fake news. Uh, I think... Uh, <clears throat> The members of the VFW fought for a little more than to hear Commander-in-Chief tell say such garbage. Meanwhile, the president recognizing that his tariffs are hurting American farmers. What is he going to do about it? He's not going to get rid of the tariffs. Instead, he's going to subsidize the farmers, pay off the farmers, and to try to shut them up before the midterm elections. And the big story of the day we got the tape. Well, CNN got the tape, so thanks to CNN, we can hear the tape where Donald Trump promises to pay cash to Karen McDougal to keep her quiet before the 2016 election. Yep, just like Richard Nixon, Donald Trump forgot to burn the tapes, and the tapes are going to get them in the end. Oh, you see what I mean? So much to talk about. Get ready. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, I got some big news, buddy. Uh, we got a big mega. We got a big mega. We got a big mega millions winner. Oh yeah. We got a big mega millions winner California. here. Here are the numbers in case you missed it. Our first winning number tonight is nineteen. That's followed by two. Up next, we have four. Your next number is. 
one of your final white ball for this Tuesday evening is 29 after the Mega Ball. That number is 20. So there you go. One, two, four, 19, and 29 with the Mega Ball number at 20. There was one winner. Mm -hmm. One winner from Ernie's Liquors in San Jose, California. That is where the ticket was sold. Yeah. The one winner is when they come forward, will win $522 million. You know, Mark Zuckerberg lives near there. <laughs> that would just be a real kick in the pants. That like would, if he it? was to be the one to win it. <laughs> so if you've got those numbers, go for it. The owner has been con the owner of uh, Ernie's Liquors has been contacted. Uh, but they don't they don't have the winner yet. The winner has not come forward, so stay tuned. Stay tuned. You know, Bill, the Damn, I didn't have a ticket on that one. No, mm. you didn't get one. But you know what? You know, you can't win if you don't play. Exactly. Uh, the Tour de France is going on. Have yes. you been paying attention to this at all? No, just a little bit. But well, I saw this one guy take a header, man. Oh, oh I saw that over the wall? Yeah. I saw that. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Unbelievable. And then he got back up and yeah. kept going. Yeah. Well, one person who is out of the race is Italian Gianni Moscan. He was kicked out of the race. Why was he kicked out of the race? Because he punched another bike yeah, rider yeah, during the yeah, race. Yeah. He was riding along. Another rider came up beside him. That's he not reached the spirit it. of the Tour de France. I don't think no. so. I don't think that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, Italy was informed of the infraction. They had they, they had to decide whether or not they wanted to uh, fire him from the race, which is what they did. It should be pointed out that this yeah. same rider was suspended from riding last year because he racially abused another cyclist during a race. So he yeah, seems to have a problem winning just by actually being really good at biking. He yeah. has to figure out different ways to uh, to win. Right. So uh, who's ahead? Do we know? I, I don't have the answer for that. Is Lance Armstrong right? No, no, no. I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> U.S. Post Office, not in there. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. We got the tape. Yep, indeed. Thanks to CNN. We've got the tape of Donald Trump and Michael Cohen talking about paying cash to Karen McDougal to keep her quiet. Turned out to be $150,000, but Michael Cohen says to Donald Trump, uh-uh-uh-uh, no, 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 you can't pay cash, dude. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Caught on tape. Here we go. It is the Bill Press Show on a Wednesday, Wednesday, July 25. So good to see you today. Hello, 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 and welcome to the program as we come to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Uh, that's not where all the action is, but that's where we start out and then bring you up to date on what's happening here in Washington, uh, just down the street at the Congress, right down the street from our studio, uh, Capitol Hill, and then also what's happening down at the White House, plus the rest of the country and around the globe. Hello, hello, hello. As we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. As we're joining you, look at you on TV, out in TV land, on Free Speech TV, coast to coast, and also on the radio statewide in Indiana, Indiana Talks, and on the, in the greater Chicago area, WCPT, taking you to work today, getting you up, getting you started. Thank you for joining us on the great progressive voice of Chicagoland, WCPT. Well, uh, it's too bad you weren't in uh, Washington last night. You could have had a good time. Oh, yeah. Good time had by all down at the wharf, this new uh, area on the Washington waterfront. 
Uh, and the big book party for uh, Sean Spicer. His book is out called uh, The Briefing. The, uh, did you go, Peter? Did you go to the book party? Oh, gosh. You know, I missed it last night. I would no, have loved to have really? been there, but good yeah. grief. Uh, yeah. Oh, I see. So um, so I just want you to know, like, you know, I published uh, nine books now. Uh, my latest one, you've heard me talk about it. Bill Press, From the Left, A Life in the Crossfire. Still get a copy on our website or at your local bookstore. And, you know, so I had a big book party, and uh, it's like open. Anybody can come, and you can have a glass of wine, have a little bit of cheese, meet your friends, and if you want to, you can buy a copy of the book. You don't have to buy a copy of the book. Uh Uh-uh. Last night for the Sean Spicer book party, guess what? It cost you $1,000 just to get in. Get out. Are you serious? Seriously. It was a ticketed event. $1,000 got you four tickets and four copies of the book. Uh, and and th- for that, you got a badge calling you press secretary. Um, Come on. For $500, you got a badge identifying you as deputy press secretary. You got two tickets and two copies of the book. And for $250... You got a badge calling yourself assistant press secretary, and you got one copy of the book. Didn't Donald Trump say something just the day before yesterday about monetizing yeah. top White House jobs? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about monetizing a top White House job. Yeah. Press secretary, give me a thousand bucks, and you can come to my book party, and I'll give you a copy of my book. Come on. I- Freaking believable. I, I actually wanted to mention this. I'm so glad you brought it up because Jonathan Carl wrote a review oh, yeah, yeah. of Sean Spicer's yeah, book. Yeah. I just want to read one paragraph. <laughs> All right. In one paragraph, I want you to see how this many things in the Sean Wall Spicer. Journal yesterday. Yeah. How many things Spicer got wrong in his right. book? Yeah. This is from Jonathan Carl's review. Mr. Spicer has not been well served by the book's fact checkers and copy editors. He refers to the author of the infamous Trump dossier as Michael Steele, who is, in mm-hmm. truth, the former chairman of the Republican National Committee, not the British ex-spy Christopher right. Steele. Right. He recounts a reporter asking President Obama a question at the White House press conference in 1999. A uh, decade Obama was not president in a, 1999. A full decade before <laughs> Obama was elected. Yes, right. There were uh, there was there are also some omissions. He writes about working for Representative <laughs> Mark Foley from Florida, who says he quote knew how to manage the news cycle, and on top of all that, he was a good he was good to the staff and fun to be around. End quote. Yeah. He never gets around to Especially, mention that Mr. Foley yeah. later resigned in disgrace for sending sexually explicit messages to teenage boys working as congressional pages. Yeah, he wasn't so much fun to be around for the teenage boys who I, were working in the in the house. No, I would mm-hmm. guess not. Yeah, I would guess right. not. Mm-hmm. Like that. That's what he put in the book. This is the book, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, go pay a lot of money for that. So, yeah. So Jonathan Carl says that uh, the briefing. Uh, the book, the book, the briefing is very much like Sean Spicer's briefings at the White House. Uh, it is short, it is littered with inaccuracies, and it has one central theme: Donald Trump can do no wrong. <laughs> That's the book, and cost you a thousand dollars just to get in to get a copy uh, of the book. Uh, that was last night's party. Tomorrow night's party, by the way, in case you don't have any other plans, if you want to come to Washington. Uh, tomorrow night's party is being held at the, where else? The Trump Hotel. The Trump International Hotel uh, down on Pennsylvania Avenue near the White House. Um, and in the lobby of the, uh, uh, the yeah, the main lobby where the bar is of the, uh, of the hotel. By the way, speak, <laughs> uh, speaking of the hotel, 
Yeah, we'll get to the day's big news here in just a second. But I thought this was interesting. Peter probably didn't know about this, but uh, last week here in Washington, D.C., uh, we have this little, um, the, 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 there's the city council, and then each neighborhood has a, what they call advisory commissions. Uh, the uh, Last week, an advisory commission here, neighborhood commission in Washington, D.C., voted unanimously to revoke the Trump International Hotel's liquor license. Wait, really? Yes, they did. To, to support a petition to the, for citywide that, to the city council that would revoke the Trump International Hotel's liquor license on the grounds that D.C. law states that licensed applicants must be, quote, of good character. <laughs> well. And they say, here's what their statement is, it is our considered view that Donald Trump, the true and actual owner of the Trump International Hotel, is not a person of good character and therefore doesn't meet the D.C. code requirements. Okay, uh, I, I just I this is, love it. Let me just be clear: this is not a defense of Donald Trump, but a lot of places that I drink have people running them that are not of good character, and I frankly I think that's a sign of a pretty good bar. But but but, but the point is well taken, and I think yes. it's I think they got a real argument here. Uh, yes, right. So anyhow, we'll just watch. We'll watch how we'll watch how that goes. And meantime, really, the blockbuster news is yeah. The tapes, the tapes get them in the end, man. They got Richard Nixon, and they're going to get Donald Trump. So, uh, okay, let's let's remember, this is just one tape, and what we know is there are at least twelve tapes. In fact, the Michael Cohen, this is a tape between Michael Cohen, who made the tape, of his conversation with Donald Trump. There's so many, so many ways to look at. It. First of all. Was that legal? Who knows, right? I mean, this is your private attorney, and he's taping you and not telling you he's taping you? So I actually— And why would Michael Cohen feel compelled to tape a conversation with Donald Trump? You know why? Because he knew that it was very, very possible that Donald Trump could turn against him, and he wanted the evidence. Yeah, no, Totally. Totally. I think that's right. But one thing I want to point out is there are, there are a lot of people who have been wondering whether or not this is legal or illegal. I don't know about the whole uh, client yeah, I don't either. privilege, but I, just... I, but I can say this. I do know this because we work in audio and we often tape people that we're interviewing. Uh, New York State, which is where this was taped, is a one-party consent state. In other words, there are some states where if I was to just randomly call someone, I have to tell them, Hey, I just need to let right. you know you're right. being recorded. Uh, it is not the case in New York. You can call someone and record that, mm -hmm. and then you have it. It's yours. You Got don't it. have to let them know. Yeah, it does vary from state to state. Remember, and I forget all the details, of the whole uh, Monica Lewinsky, what was her name, the woman that she confided Linda to? Linda Tripp. Linda Tripp. I haven't said that name in a long, long time. Right. And the, there was a question about the tapes. She yeah. had tapes and whether they were legal or not because what was the rule in Maryland or wherever yeah. the thing, or Virginia where it was taped is different than what it is in D.C. At any rate, that's, that's another whole question. Michael Cohen's having a question with his attorney, a little conversation. And by the way, you can tell this is in the middle of the campaign. And 
Trump's a busy guy, right? He's running for president. He's the, he's the nominee. And Michael Cohen's got about two minutes, three minutes, and he's got a lot of stuff to talk about. So if you listen to the whole tape, which I encourage you to do, by the way, go to CNN.com. I listened to it a couple of times this morning. Listen to the whole tape. And uh, you'll see they start out, Trump's having a conversation with somebody else. Sounds like it might be Ivanka. We'll see you, honey. Boom, boom, boom. And then uh, they talk about some other deal they got to do. Uh, and then he gets around to, like, so Michael Cohen's got boom, 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 two or three things he's got to do real fast with Donald Trump. And then he gets around to this. Now, the tape, but let's listen to it. The audio, this little clip, it's not all that clear. Uh, but first of all, he starts out. Um, there's a character he names here. David, <clears throat> yes, Pecker. David Pecker is the head of American Enterprise, um, whatever the company is that owns the National Enquirer. Uh, and he says, look, I got to set up a, I got to set up a separate company to handle this financing uh, which David Pecker, uh, we got to get all the stuff from Pecker, from there, from Pecker, from David into this new company uh, because they're afraid that something could happen to Pecker or he could get, as Donald Trump says, he could get hit by a truck, whatever, and they got to set up their own company to deal with this, which Michael Cohen did. So that's the background. Here's the first part of that little conversation. I need to open up a company for the transfer of all of that info regarding our friend David, you know, so yeah. that I'm going to do that right away. I've actually come up and, spoke to me, and I've spoken to Alan Weisselberg about how to set the whole thing up uh, with so what are we funding. The, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, so you can't make out everything Trump was saying, but I've got to set up a separate company to deal with this m a matter regarding our friend David. Here's, what I, uh, here's an important thing, I think, to note there. Donald Trump knows exactly what he's talking about. He doesn't say about what. He doesn't say David who, right? He doesn't say why are we even talking about financing for David. He knows what's going on. And what's going on is, what's going on is, the National Enquirer got the story, remember, from Karen McDougal, former Playboy model, about her affair with Donald Trump, I'm not even going to say alleged anymore. What the hell? They wouldn't have paid her $150,000. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. So, uh, so the national then Donald Trump knows they're going to publish. They could publish the story. He doesn't want that. So the National Enquirer then goes to Karen McDougal and says, "Look, we got your story. Thank you. Now we're going to pay you not to publish your story." We're not going to publish it, but we'll pay you instead $150,000. And Michael Cohen says, we got to set up a company, get that information over here, and then we'll be in charge of it, and basically we'll pay her. And now, how are we going to pay her? That's what gets tricky here. Uh, listen to this part. This is a part where i got to tell you, it sounds to me like Donald Trump is saying, pay her in cash. When it comes time for the financing, which will be listen, what financing? We'll have to pay you. So no, 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 no. I got no, no, no. So when it comes to the financing, Trump says, "What financing?" He says, "Well, we're going to have to pay." Trump says, "Sounds to me again like pairing cash." Pay you. So I'll pay the cash. And then Cohen right away says, "No, no, 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 no. Yeah. No, no, no. You can't do that." Now, the White House. 
So when the tape comes out, Lanny Davis, who is uh, Michael Cohen's attorney, our good friend, Lanny Davis, long time, uh, when he releases a tape to CNN, and he was on CNN last night, we'll play that in just a second, he releases a tape, once the tape is on CNN, then the White House, Rudy Giuliani, who is Trump's, now Trump's attorney on this matter, Rudy releases what they say is the transcript of the conversation. So they take that tape and they say, here's what it says. And here's Rudy Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani translating what Donald Trump said. And the transcript makes it quite clear at the end that President Trump says, quote, don't pay with cash. Now, I didn't hear that. I don't know whether you did. If he says it, he doesn't say it clearly. Right. I was going to say, look, it's not clear. It's not clear. It's either not way clear to either way. Yeah. But if you just pick up on what Michael Cohen's talking about, the reaction he has to Trump, the uh-huh. the manner in which they set this conversation up, it doesn't make sense for him to say don't pay in cash. No, and it doesn't make sense for Donald for Michael Cohen. To me, the giveaway is Michael Cohen said, no, 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 no. Right. Right. We have to set up some financing. Well, just pay what? in cash. No, no, up, no, you can't pay We in have cash. to set up some financing. What financing? We, we're going to have to pay something. Pay in cash. Pay in cash. No, 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 no. Right. Like that, that makes total sense. If you right. say don't pay in cash, that doesn't make much sense, right? Mm. Yeah. Why would he even raise that right. issue, right? Right. Of course. Yeah. Of course that attorney is not going to pay in cash. And by, the, and by the way, cash... As as we know, it, it's pretty hard to trace. It's pretty hard to track, right? You pay her in cash, it's over. Yeah. Right. Uh, and by the way, I just remembered the earlier part, which we don't have to get into. One of the earlier things they discuss is he talks about the New York Times. So this is like two weeks before the election. That's important to get to context. He talks about the New York Times is trying to get the divorce papers on Ivana. And, and Trump says... They, can never, they should never have those. And Michael Cohen says, don't worry, they're not going to get them. And Trump says, you got to keep them secret for another two weeks. And Michael Cohen says, no, even after that, they're not going to get them. So this, the time frame is they're thinking about what they have to keep secret, what they have to keep covered up for two weeks. That's why, again, I think, parent cash, parent cash, get it rid of. Does it say it? So we heard what Rudy Giuliani says, the tape says, Lenny Davis, Michael Cohen's attorney, on CNN, right after they play the tape, with uh, Chris Cuomo, says, no, here's what the tape says. Richard Nixon couldn't spin the tape that did him in, and there's no way that Mr. Giuliani, who knows from being U.S. attorney, the only people who use cash are drug dealers and mobsters. (laughs) Cash is not what you do. And it was Michael Cohen who said, no, 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 and Donald Trump, Despite what Rudy Giuliani said publicly, the tape contradicts Mr. Giuliani, and the word cash is heard by everyone. How many people use cash? I love that line. Are drug dealers and and mobsters. Which one is he? (laughs) And crooked businessmen who are running for president. (laughs) Also that. And want to cover cover things up. Right. So that's where it uh, stands. Now. Uh, a couple of things here. Where does this go? We don't know where it goes. But Lanny Davis, one thing he did remind us last night is uh, there are, uh, and he was asked, are you going to release any of the other tapes? And he says, um, we'll see. But there are a lot of other tapes. So 
There are a lot of other tapes. It's this is this is not the last tape we're going to hear. Uh, and Michael Cohen's got the tapes. He's in charge of the tapes. He and Lanny Davis will decide when they release them and when they won't. That's trouble for Donald Trump. And may we also point make another point, which may be obvious, but it's worth making. Michael Cohen has flipped. There is no way. I mean, let's fa- Michael Cohen is now is no longer on Donald Trump's huh. side. Yeah, I mean, he, right. done. Case closed. Yeah. This Period. Guy, this. <laughs> how much did it cost you to use that? <laughs> yeah, right. This is shocking. A shocking, shocking tape. Yeah. No. And to think, this is one of. A, like there are a bunch of audio tapes. This is just the first like, tape we're getting. Lanny yeah. Davis says there are lots of. There tapes. are a lot of them. Yeah. So release so, them all. Yeah, put them all out there. And like, look, if there's any idea, like you mentioned, if that that Michael Cohen is going to continue to protect Donald Trump. Oh no, no, it's done. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's all downhill from here for so, Trump. He's the John Dean of this whole mess, right? Yeah. Uh, so um, we'll see where that where that goes, but no, no doubt about it. Not good news. And I, you know. Here's the you got Michael Avenatti representing Stormy Daniels and Lanny Davis representing Michael Cohen up against Rudy Giuliani, who Damn. I think has early dementia. <laughs> uh, he certainly doesn't make much sense anymore. And uh, representing Donald Trump, uh, I'll tell you, if I were betting man, I put my I put my money on uh, Avenatti and Lanny Davis in that one. Uh, the president, meanwhile, he's going out to uh, he went out to the VFW yesterday uh, and uh, made a big announcement about uh, the tariffs. Now, you know, he's in the heartland where the farmers are really hurting and uh, Republicans in Congress are starting to get really worried because the farmers are complaining that these tariffs, particularly the tariffs on China that the president has levied, are hurting American farmers, hurting American farmers. Here's here's one farmer. Uh, Megan Kaiser, she was on ABC last, ABC's podcast. She's a soybean and corn farmer out in Missouri, where the president was yesterday. And she says, look, we had our crops in the ground, and Donald Trump is basically plowing them under. It's pretty scary for any business to look at um, that the crop that's in the ground right now might be worth 18% less than, uh, you know, how we had managed when we put it in the ground. Yeah. Why? Because of Donald Trump's tariffs. And again, more and more, more and more voices from uh, from the heartland are being heard about this. So what's Donald Trump do? He goes out to the VFW last night, yesterday, and says, no, 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 still insisting. In the long run, this is going to help our farmers if they are only patient. They don't want to have those tariffs put on them. They're all coming to see us. And the farmers will be the biggest beneficiary. Watch. We're opening up markets. You watch what's going to happen. Just be a little patient. Oh, yeah. Be a little patient. And then on top of that, he says, okay, we're going to help the farmers. I'm asking Congress for $12 billion, uh, or I think he directed the Agriculture Department to pay $12 billion in subsidies, extra payments to farmers, to make up for what they're losing from the tariffs that he put in place. I mean, do you follow this? So he levies these tariffs that hurt the farmers and hurt us because that means we have to pay extra for products now because of these tariffs. We really? have to pay more. For no good reason. No, just He just did of, it. 
because he just did it. Just did it. Now, on top of having to pay more for these goods that are coming in from the countries that have these tariffs on them now, we have to pay more in taxes, $12 billion more in taxes, to help out the farmers who are being hurt by his tariffs. He's, <laughs> he's charging us to fix a problem that he created in the first place. I mean, talk about funny money, right? This is a, like a, a, a just a in-your-face admission that, that what he's done working. has caused harm yeah. to to right. these real-world rural voters that he loves so much and loves to tout and bring right. out all the time. He's caused them so much damage that he has to bail them out. And how, how, how can these people in these rural communities and these farmers still support Donald Trump? They, they know they know, and they told him, don't do these tariffs. It's really going to hurt us. He does them. They're really hurting. And so now he's trying to buy them off. Buy them off. And the White House has said, by the way, what this $12 billion is for is to placate the farmers, to keep them quiet until after the midterm elections. Yeah. So yeah. they won't come. You heard that little first part of that little bite where he says, no, they're coming to see us. They're coming to Washington. Oh, I don't like this. We've got to shut them up. We got to buy them off. We got to pay them off. That's what he's doing. Yeah, it's disgusting, and it's more disgusting for any Trump voter, any Trump supporter, to go along with this. I say it's a double whammy. You get hit by the tariffs, then you get hit by the taxes to pay for the damage that the tariffs have caused. Unfreaking believable. It's almost like he doesn't know what he's doing. It's almost, almost like he has no clue what's going on. Almost, I would. It's but, almost like he's a bad businessman, Bill. <laughs> no, but I would never say that because uh, he might take away my security clearance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so got to be careful about that, you know. Uh, well, at least there are some outstanding, upstanding members of the president's cabinet that we can be grateful for. Like you know, at least we have a uh, uh, an attorney general who believes in the rule of law and the and the justice system. Uh, and stands up for it in front of any audience, like Jeff Sessions, yeah, yesterday. Okay, so here's this group of conservative teenagers, high schoolers, uh, the Loser, losers. losers, come to Washington, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the, the thing is called Turning Point USA High School Leadership. You know you're in trouble when you got that bad, yeah. right? <laughs> so these are these little rednecks from all over the country that come to Washington once a year. And, of course, they have Jeff Sessions as their speaker, and he comes out, and they start chanting, lock her up. This is like Michael Flynn in front of the Republican convention. But wait a minute, friends. This is two years later. These are high schoolers. This is the attorney general of the United States. So you think he might say, hey, wait, wait, hey, hey guys, that's behind us, right? Let's move forward. I mean, no, no. no. No, instead, he just chants right along with them and laughs it off. Lock her up. Well, so ra a ra I heard that a long time over the last campaign. <laughs> God, idiot. Racist Jeff Sessions. Yeah. Uh, you know, if he had any self-respect, he wouldn't be there any longer. This is a guy Donald Trump throttles regularly, right? Says, I wish I hadn't appointed him. I wish I, if I'd only known how bad he is, I would have appointed somebody else. And yet Jeff Sessions still stays there. You know, yeah, what a joke.
uh, not a, it's not a joke. He's the Attorney General of the United States, and the best he can do is laugh and chuckle and chant, lock her up, lock her up. Give me a break. Hey, great lineup of guests today. Man, we're just getting started. So much time on the tape, but that's really important. Going to take a look at things may be turning here, or are they turning, when it comes to the midterms. Kyle Kondek from the University of Virginia Center for Politics. Jordan Fabian was with the president yesterday uh, on Air Force One uh, out in uh, Kansas City, or somewhere in Kansas. Anyhow, he um, for, was it Kansas, Missouri, wherever he went for, forget. For the Jordan will tell us Jordan Fabian from the Hill, covering the White House for the Hill, and then Matt Ford from New Republic joining us a little bit later as well. So take a quick break, and we'll start off with Kyle Condick here on the Bill Press Show Wednesday, July twenty-five. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show. What do you say? Make it a Wednesday, July twenty-five, and we're in business here. The Bill Press Show. Live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., with all the news of the day. And there is a lot of it, um, as we say every day, never a dull day in uh, Trump land. We uh, join you from uh, our studio on Capitol Hill, where we are brought to you today by the American Federation of Teachers. Those great men and women, teachers of America, under the leadership of President Randy Weingarten, making a difference in our classrooms every day. Uh, we salute them, thank them for doing the Lord's work and for their support of the program. And welcome to the studio, our good friend from the University of Virginia Center for Politics, Kyle Kondik. Hello, Kyle. Great to see you. Good to be here. And our good friend Larry Sabato. Give him our best when you talk to him. Absolutely. Uh, we want to jump into some of the latest numbers that you guys have come up with. Uh, but uh, take a listen first to some of the comments uh, generated in the last half hour. Yes, indeed. We're on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Let's start with Loretta about the <laughs> tapes. We've heard this, uh, at least the first tape that came out from Michael Cohen and Donald Trump. Loretta says, I don't trust Michael Cohen or anything he does. That said, I hope there's a tape by him or anyone of Trump talking about how gullible and stupid his own followers are. You know he has said that privately at some point. Oh, whoa. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with that. Game Over fake says... Fake news, he'll say. Fake, yes, of out. course. Uh, Game Over says, anyone who believes Cohen is capable of taping the orange buffoon but the ex-head of the KGB isn't is not existing on a level of reality. In other words, Vladimir Putin definitely taped their conversation. Uh, and By the way, I hope we did too. Oh yeah! I mean, if if the NSA doesn't oh, know yeah. every word that was uttered in those two hours, then they ought to shut down the NSA. Yeah. It what do we? It is a fair point. But don't you think? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. What, what are we paying all these spy agencies for? Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Also, uh, you, we talked about David Pecker. David uh, Phil says David Pecker is the most unfortunately named person in Trump scandals. It makes me chuckle every time because I'm 11 years old. Uh, yeah, same, same, same here. Uh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And don't forget, by the hard way, we, to, it's hard to say David Pecker. Without David laughing. Pecker. David yeah. Pecker. Uh, don't forget, we are on YouTube, YouTube.com/slash The Bill Press Show, where we also have a chat room. There, you can join in the conversation. Uh, Merle Ann says, "I hate to be Debbie Downer, but I doubt that the tapes are surefire proof of anything. They will be spun into incomprehensibility. Just look at the spin about the green cash versus finance cash. I don't disagree with that. I think that that yeah. is Donald Trump's true skill is." 
weaseling out of a, <laughs> a pretty serious scandal. But if you have a comment, find us on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Or remember, you can just go to YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show and uh, hit us up in the chat room. But at least, at least it does this. It keeps that topic alive yeah. and keeps the White House worried about Michael Cohen. Mike, yeah. I'm telling you, he's the linchpin in this whole thing or could end up being it. So, we, so Kyle, I want to ask you, first of all, before we get into the midterms here, uh, mm -hmm. just a gen generic question. So, first of all, I was in California end of last week. Mm -hmm. In California, as you know today, um, I forget the exact numbers, but the uh, Democratic Party, don't hold me this, is something like 35% or something, or 29%, 30%. The Republican, the unaffiliated or independents, are 25.2% and Republican parties in third place at 25%. Now, so then, I see this in the New York Times this morning. Colorado is one of the purplest states in the nation. It has 1 million registered Democrats, 1 million registered Republicans, and 1.2 million unaffiliated voters. So my question is, is this a trend that's happening around the country that more and more people are going to independent or unaffiliated as opposed uh, it, to either party it is a trend uh, in fact we just had a piece in our crystal ball newsletter a couple weeks ago from uh, Rhodes cook who you probably know or know of uh, Rhodes has been covering American politics for decades and he did a big piece for us about the party registration trends in the 30 or so states that actually track it mm -hmm. and you know what one of the things that stands out is that even states that are kind of red or definitely red states still have Democratic voter registration advantages states like West Virginia in Kentucky and Louisiana that were sort of ancestrally Democratic but really aren't Democratic now. And then also that this unaffiliated group is sort of is sort of rising and that more and more voters are choosing not to affiliate with one of the two parties if they if they can. Uh, in some states, in order to participate in a primary, you need to um, register with one party or the other. But yeah, that is that is a trend. Um, I think it's sort of in vogue. And you also see this in polls just asking people, hey, which party you, do you consider yourself a member of? Usually the Democrats are up three or four points in that question, and that's been true for a long time. Uh, but the number of independents is rising, even though partisanship in the United States actually is rising too. And so I think it's just more and more an instance of voters deciding they don't want to be like officially affiliated with a party or that they don't want to even <laughs> say that they're affiliated with a party. But actually, deep down, they're probably voting pretty predictably uh, one way or the other. Although, as we saw in the last presidential election, I think it's sort of in vogue to say, oh, well, there are no swing voters. Well, there actually are a lot of swing voters because otherwise you wouldn't see um, places like, uh, you know, suburban Atlanta. Like there's a congressional district down there, Georgia 6. Remember, we had that special election last year. Uh, you know, that district went from voting for Romney by about 20 points to voting for Trump by two. I mean, there's a lot of mm. swing voters in that district. And there were, of course, many swing districts that went from voting for, you know, voting for Obama that then voted for Trump. And so um, voters do move around some. Uh, and, you know, you do see that in this this party registration question, too. So uh, Nate Silver, I saw some numbers the other day, and he pointed out that Republican registration, I may be off a little bit here, but it, it has sort of fallen in the last couple of years from 28, 29 percent down to like 25, 26 or something. He yeah. was making the point that that doesn't sound like a lot, but it is significant. Well, so and, and while the, unaffiliated rise, is Republican registration across the board going down? Well, I think that... And what does that, that mean? I think he might have been 
I don't know if he was talking about registration or if he was talking about the those party affiliation, like Gallup asking people. That's, that's what it was. Yeah, I and, think. and yeah, and there is some there's some thought that that's happening. <laughs> some experts have disagreed. It's sort of been a topic recently. Um, but here, to your point, it is very important for American politics if the number of self-identified Republicans goes from you know 28 to 26 or 25 because that's a lot of people. And also, there's this obsession. I would say kind of a the, the focus is kind of wrong i think but this there's this obsession of oh what's trump's numbers with his base you know oh well he's at 85 percent right. with republicans well what if um mm-hmm. republican self-identifiers are down a little bit because there are some people who basically have left the that party means the total number is yeah it means that there actually are more conservative slash republican voters who don't like the president yes who, yeah who don't like him so much that they don't really even associate with the party anymore yeah. Um, and that may be that may be happening uh, to some degree. And also, and, and you know, this is a big part of the, the, the midterm calculus, you know, oh, well, Trump's got 85, 90 percent approval amongst his base. Well, yeah, but his numbers are bad with everybody else. And that's a problem. And his overall approval is stuck in the 40s. I mean, that's part of the reason yeah. why um, the Democrats are, you know, probably better than 50 50 to win the House now. Well, that was your that was uh, that gets us to uh, why we were very uh, excited to be able to talk to you this week. Uh, your report a couple of days ago, I guess, that um, you're a little more bullish on Democrats taking the House than you have been, and now it's better than a 50-50 chance, you think? Yeah, that's where we're at. And, and again, part of it is, you know, part of the thing I tried to address in the article was to say, well, what's changed? And, and actually a lot hasn't changed, which is notable in, in and of itself. You know, the president's approval, it's maybe a little bit better than it's been at its worst points, but it's still kind of stuck in that 42, 43 range. Right. The House generic ballot, of course, national poll asking people whether they vote for a Democrat or Republican in their local House district. That's been pretty steady at about a six to eight point Democratic lead throughout the cycle, um, which is around where you would think the Democrats would have a, you know, a decent chance to win the House. They'd obviously like it to be higher, particularly in the double digits, but um, six to eight is still a decent point place to be at. And also, you, you we have had a bunch of elections so far this year, uh, special elections, also the elections in Virginia and New Jersey. Democrats have generally done pretty well uh, taken, you know, in these elections taken in total. They've been running well ahead of Hillary Clinton's performance from 2016. And that is sort of a confirmation of what the generic ballot uh, polling is saying. And then there are some individual district level reasons why um, part of it is the fundraising for Democratic House candidates, which really has been extraordinary. Republican House fundraising hasn't necessarily been bad. It's just the Democratic fundraising has been great. And that's kind of another confirmation of just this sort of engaged uh, electorate uh, and donor base out there. And, you know, that's what you would expect in a midterm election. Right. Um, is that the president's party has a hard time, particularly if the president is unpopular. And that's where we're at. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I looked at the numbers and uh, your report when it came out. As I recall, there were like 17 districts or key districts or something that you all. That yeah, you, we, we so we do, you know we do our ratings of the districts and yeah. the, all the way from safe Republican to safe Democratic. Right. Um, most districts are safe for one party or the other. Probably at least uh, three quarters of them are. How many are at play? Um, I don't know the number off the top of my head. I think it's it's probably something like 70 or 80 though on the Republican side. Now a lot of those are going to fall by the wayside. But if you only need 23 as the Democrats to take the House, you know, you don't have to you don't have to bat a thousand on the competitive seats. And one other positive thing for the Democrats is that there's an unusually high number of open seats this year. And, you know, there is still an incumbency advantage in American politics. You know, 
the public says, oh, we hate it. We, we hate Congress. We, you know, throw them all out, except for our guy. You know, he's, yeah, he's right. good. But the yeah, incumbency right. is still worth a few points. Uh, and uh, but but if you've got these open seats to target, as the Democrats do, uh, that provides some kind of low hanging fruit right off the, right off the bat that you can sort of knock off to sort of start building toward that 23 seats. So you would on a scale of one to 10, uh, the chances of Democrats taking back the House? Uh, well, I guess I'd put it at like a seven, um, mm-hmm. roughly um, six or seven. But the uh, Republicans also have have uh, before we get too excited about the blue wave. Right. The Republicans. It's important to keep in mind they have some things going for them too. They do. I the mean, economy. Yes. Uh, we you know we're midterms not... uh, turnout is usually low, mm-hmm. and it's usually older, whiter people that turn out usually, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and as you point out, among Republicans, Trump is certainly eighty-eight um, percent or something popular. Uh, so we're also at a time of of, of peace, basically. Yeah, uh, that's not right. to say that American troops are not engaged overseas, but it's not. Yeah. it's not like Iraq in two thousand six. Or we may not be at war against Iran on, before November. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, or North Korea. I mean, who knows? Right. right. Hey. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, but uh, so so there are sort of. Things are sort of stable, even though they don't feel stable because of the president. And that's sort of the problem for the Republicans, I think, is that things feel chaotic when, when otherwise they don't they don't have to feel chaotic. You know, a lot of the disruption going on is of the president's own doing based on the tariffs and his, you know, playing footsie with Putin and, you know, other other things. Um, but fundamentally, I think that, that the American American voters in a midterm environment often seek to put a check on the White House, particularly if they're sort of a little murky on the incumbent. And that's certainly the, the position that we're in. Uh, one advantage for Republicans, too, though, is that uh, the the House map is generally leans a little bit Republican. The median House seat, if you would take all 435 seats, rate them from Clinton's best district to Clinton's worst district. The median district is uh, Nebraska, two, which is Omaha. Uh, which is a district that, that Trump won by about two points. Uh, so, and Clinton mm. won nationally by two points, and so the median district is about four points to the to the right of the nation. Uh, now, that advantage for Republicans has been blunted in recent years because uh, courts instituted new maps in Virginia and Florida before the last election, which led to a few Democratic gains. And there's a new House map in Pennsylvania that replaced a Republican gerrymander with a kind of neutral slash democratic leaning map and so democrats should be able to net three four even five seats just out of pennsylvania uh so that development has been uh, has been been good for the democrats let me make one other point about turnout because you said that you know yeah, the, right. the electorate is is basically older well, and whiter and that's that's predictive more of being a more conservative republican yeah, voter yeah. however the the midterm electorate is usually also uh more educated in terms of having you know formal four-year college education those voters are a little bit more reliable too and that used to be a Republican constituency, but it's not now. Those voters don't really like the president the way that they would have liked a George H.W. Bush or a Ronald Reagan or even a Mitt Romney had, had Mitt Romney been elected president. And, you know, that was the yeah. big change that we saw in 2016 was that white college voters swung away from the Republicans, white non-college voters swung toward the Republicans. And that, that was a good trade-off for Trump in 2016 because of the— White non-college group being being a, a big part of the electorates. I mean, everywhere, but but particularly in the Midwest, where he he eked out some close victories. But in a midterm environment, 
you know, you may rather have the, the more kind of educated electorate because that's the more reliable group. And lots of polls have indicated that those voters heavily favor uh, Democrats, d- Democratic candidates this time. Well, isn't there another factor, which is the enthusiasm gap? I mean, yes. even uh, turnout among millennials, young people on the left, um, even if they're not winning the numbers that I've seen, the turnout exceeds anything Democrats have been able to put on the table before. Well, and, and if you if you look at here's another another indicator that's been been sort of suggestive in the past is when you asked pe- voters how enthusiastic they were to show up in like ten and fourteen, it was the Republicans. You right. know, had an advantage yeah. on that question. Now the Democrats typically have an advantage on on the question of how enthusiastic are you to vote, and the people who say they're very enthusiastic generally more of a Democratic leaning group. Um, one thing there's, you'll sometimes see polls that the last voters, are you certain to vote? Yeah. And Republicans typically lead on that question. However, lots of people lie about that question because if they you know, sixty percent of people say, "Oh yeah, I'm certain to vote." Well, midterm turnouts only forty percent, so somebody's somebody's not telling the truth. Yeah. So who, th- I think the enthusiasm question is more valuable. Who's not going to uh, Who's going to tell the pollster? Nah, I'm not going to vote. I mean, yeah. you know, they, I'm a bad person. I'm, I don't vote. We, yeah. People know that they should vote, even though they they often don't. Right. Or right. they and they know that they should say that the socially acceptable answer is to say that I'm going to vote. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we were talking to Ben Wickler from MoveOn.org yesterday. I mean, that's just one of the organizations. There are a lot of organizations on the left, Our Revolution, MoveOn.org, Emily's List, whatever, I mean, that are really stirring things up in a positive way in terms of voter turnout. Uh, yeah. I don't see that same movement or energy on the Republican side. Yeah, and again, you know, the, the I mean, the, the, the Tea Party during the Obama years was yes. sort of a, a – Kind of a, a organic, at least to start with, kind of a turn, you know, turnout thing, and and you know, basically what happens here is that the party that's the party that's angrier in the midterm is often often uh, you know the party that that, that ends up winning. Um, yeah, I think there was a poll yesterday. I think for Morning Consult, basically asking voters about their basically feelings about the election, and the Democrats were leading on the anger question by a significant amount, and that to me is a is a good is a good thing for Democrats in terms of turnout. Right. Uh, right direction, wrong direction. Where's that question? Right. It's um. So one one part about that question, and, and a lot of pollsters ask it, is it's almost always negative, and it, it only is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's often very negative. But the trends matter, and the trends are actually good good on that question in terms of the the right track. It's you know I I can't remember off the top of my head, yeah. but it's it's something like thirty five to fifty, you know, right track, wrong track. But I think it was more like 25 to 60 in the recent past. And that's a reflection of the economy, I think. Right. Uh, and, you know, if the Republicans hold the House, uh, it will be in large part, I think, because people just basically feel content about Time the, the— As you say, the economy is pretty good. We're not at war. And right. So, exactly. You know, generally. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it also, it also uh, makes you think that wh- how, where would the Republicans be if they had a president who wasn't basically making negative news every day? So um, um, on uh, just uh, uh, the scale, you said of a seven on a scale of one to ten to take back the House uh, all in the United States Senate, Democrats' chances of taking back the Senate on a scale uh, of one to ten? I'd put it at like a three or a four. Whoa, that so, low, huh? Yeah. So, yeah, just because the map is so bad. Although, yeah. actually, you know, at the start of the cycle, you know, three or four would have been – would have seemed high, I think, um, because – you know, the Democrats have to hold all 26 seats they currently hold and then pick up two more or pick up three more and just lose one. Where's the one um, they're most likely to pick up? Nevada? 
Uh, I actually think it's Arizona, interestingly. Really? I would put Arizona and Nevada very close to each other, but Arizona is an open seat. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the polling I've seen Kirsten indicates Cinema that is yeah, Cinema is going to be the Democrat and then probably Martha McSally, a Republican House member, although um, she's running against two um, uh, uh, – I don't want to use the word crazy, but <laughs> – Basically, <laughs> um, but I guess I just did. But uh, uh, Kelly Ward and, and Joe Arpaio, and of course Joe Arpaio is kind of a national celebrity, and, yeah, and uh, yeah. you know got a pardon from the president and all that. But um, but anyway, McSally is a good candidate. Cinema is a good candidate. They're probably going to both going to get through. Uh, I just think Cinema is in a good spot because she doesn't have a late primary to deal with. It's an open seat. It's, something's going on in Arizona because actually. It seems like the governor there, the Republican Doug Ducey, is actually in some trouble too. I don't exactly know what's going on, but like. Um, that's hmm. a state that that you know only voted for Trump by three and a half points. Of course, a classically Republican state Classic for a red, long red, time. Red, right. But uh, something is changing in Arizona. Uh, Nevada doesn't feel like it's changing. Um, but the, the, you know the Democrats have this sort of like small advantage there. Basically, if I had to pick it today, I would probably pick the Democrats to win both Arizona and Nevada. Uh, but then I, I don't think I would pick every Democratic Senate incumbent to win. I'd pick most of them to win, yeah. but I think that um, I think Heidi Heidkamp of North Dakota is actually in the most trouble. Uh, she's probably she's either tied or probably a little bit behind. But, you know, the flip side of that is to say that we're all about 100 days to the election and none of these red state Democratic Senate incumbents are are dead in the water. I mean, they're all still in the game. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. you know, they all won in 2012 while Mitt Romney was carrying their states by by many points. Uh, you know, so so you could sort of piece it together in which Nevada and Arizona flip and the Democrats hold their own or maybe they win Texas or Tennessee or something. The one I'm more worried about than any of the five that we always talk about in the red state Democrats is Bill Nelson of Florida. Yeah. Um, and I will say I think it's a, a warning sign for Democrats that Nelson kind of feels like historically the kind of incumbent who sometimes loses you know he's up there in age he doesn't he's getting outworked i think by rick scott uh and he's getting you know, he's getting outraised by rick scott and so if nelson hangs on i think it'll be sort of because of the environment um but i also think that 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 race is basically 50 50 or that nelson maybe even has a little advantage because of because of the environment i mean scott yeah. is is more popular than he's been in the past but you know, you won in 2010 and 2014 by about a point apiece in great Republican years. So it's not like he's some sort of dynamo elect electoral performer. So there's a front page article in The Washington Post this morning that says Democrats beware. Beware, Democrats. The Democratic Party is a great danger today, great trouble because of these Democratic socialists are taking over. As an article similar to the article on the front page of The New York Times on Sunday. I mean, how real is this? It's, it's, this sounds to me like the Red Scare almost. You uh, know? I, I don't think it really matters for 2018 because I think a midterm is just more about like who's in power. You know, I, don't, I think that I think I don't think the Democrats have much burden of proof in terms of like a governing philosophy. Now, for the 2020 presidential nomination process, it's a it's a it's a it becomes a more of an interesting uh, decision the party has to make on its future direction. But um, I'm. I'm not really thinking ahead to 2020 yet. Yeah, I don't, yeah. yeah. and uh, and so from a 2018 standpoint, you know, so, look, I mean, there's there are people like uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez who have won, but then there are also people like Connor Lamb who's won in Pennsylvania, who is ideologically a little bit, you know, different than than and, her. And, and so Doug Jones in Alabama. Yeah, and so the you know the Democrats have historically been 
Um, I think a big tent party. I mean, the Republicans have too in, in certain different kinds of ways. Both parties are, and I think the Democrats in particular have to be, because yeah. you know I mentioned earlier, you know, the median House seat is to the right of the nation. You're not going to win the House as, as a Democrat if you're not carrying at least some slightly Republican leaning turf. Uh, so the Democrats have to be a big tent party, and actually, Ocasio Cortez has said that in you know in some yeah. of her yeah. some of her post election interviews that that she's not necessarily trying to force her ideology on other on, people on every district. Yeah, yeah. no, um, no. So I, th- I think this this whole thing is uh, exaggerated, but um, but it makes for a good story these days, I guess. Whatever. Uh, hey, Kyle, great. Bring, thanks for bringing us up to date. Um, great to be here. I like those odds of a seven out of ten chance of taking back the house. Good to see you. It's uh, at Kay Condic, right? That's right. Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how you can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. The tape. We got the tape, and they're playing the tape. Exclusive tape. Don't see it. Got it. Now everybody's got it. Michael Cohen, uh, Donald Trump's attorney, talking to him about setting up an operation, a company, special company, to make payments to Karen McDougal to keep her quiet until after the election. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is Wednesday, July 25. With that little bit of breaking news, we start off the day here. There's lots more to talk about as well. Never a dull news day in the Trump world. And this is it, the Bill Press Show, your chance to find out everything that's happening um, both here in Washington, D.C., around the country and around the globe, with our eyes especially on the Congress and the White House. Not only that, the president yesterday saying... Yeah, there are some people hurt that are being hurt by my tariffs. So we're just going to um, put up $12 billion to pay them off and keep them quiet until after the election. So much to talk about. Thank you for being with us today. And uh, we want to hear from you. Send us your comments on Twitter, at uh, BP Show. Uh, the president jetting out to on Air Force One to Kansas City yesterday to speak to the Veterans of Foreign Wars, their big convention and do a couple of fundraisers. Uh, he was dogged by Jordan Fabian from the Hill on pool duty yesterday on Air Force One. Jordan, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. I mean, from Air Force One to our little studio here. Pretty I mean. good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it was, a, it was an exhausting day yesterday, so appreciate uh, doubly appreciate your coming in today. And we'll get right to the news of the day with Jordan with you. Don't forget your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, this is a cautionary tale from Uh Halifax, Nova Scotia. So there was a a guy, a father, who had a 
an edible chocolate bar. It had weed in it, right? So oh, you're supposed yeah. to eat one piece to get high. Well, he had a four-year-old daughter oh, no. who ate the entire oh, that's... chocolate bar. I want to just say, first of all, that she's fine. She's oh, fine. Yeah, she, but... nothing, nothing major happened to her. But he went looking for his chocolate bar. He couldn't find it. And then he noticed that his daughter looked very, very pale. <laughs> And he put two and two together and said, oh, no, she ate the whole chocolate bar. Called the police. She came. Uh, they came. Took the girl to the hospital. They treated her. Pumped her stomach. She's now fine. She has since been released. Now, remember, it's going to be legal in Canada later on this year. Marijuana. Recreational marijuana will be legal in Canada later on this year. But edibles were not part of that legislation. Really? So they still have to figure out what to do about the edibles. So they had a bit of a, a Maureen Dowd problem with this. Ate, yeah, ate I was just too thinking, much of the edible. Right. Too much of the edible. You don't eat the whole candy bar. You, you don't, don't. You eat never the eat the whole thing. Ever. 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 Uh, have you ever been into a Planet Fitness, Bill? It's a gym. It's a nationwide chain. Planet Fitness. No. All right. No. Well, there was a guy I mean, who... I have been to the gym. Fair. No, no, no. Very, no, no. Yes. Well, Planet Fitness is a different type of gym, apparently, because there was a man in Massachusetts who went into his uh, Planet Fitness and started working out in the nude. In the nude. Is this the rule for Planet Fitness? No, I want to be very oh, clear. Oh, this is okay. not the rule. But one of their slogans is, it's a judgment-free zone here. And so when the cops showed up to arrest the man, what was his defense? <laughs> I thought I was in a judgment-free zone. <laughs> Apparently, he was very, very judged because you cannot work out at Planet Fitness or any gym that I know of without clothes on. The man's name is Eric Stagno. He was arrested over the weekend. Uh, if you're going to go to the gym, which is a good idea, you should probably put on clothes, which is also a good but idea. But couldn't the management take care of that? They really had to call the cops. I guess I don't know how I would exactly handle it. They say he walked in, stripped down right <laughs> in the front, and left his clothes at the desk when he came in, and immediately <laughs> got on a yoga mat and started working out. Planet Naked. Fitness had to have seen that one coming, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Judgment free zone. Yes. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. The tape. We got the tape, and everybody is playing the tape. Michael Cohen talking with his attorney, Donald Trump, two weeks before the election about arranging to make a payment to Karen McDougal so she wouldn't tell her story about an alleged affair with candidate Donald Trump. And how many tapes are there? Are we going to hear them all? What do you say? Hello, everybody. Wednesday, July 25, the Bill Press Show, live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. With uh, the news of the day, wherever it's happening, we're on top of it. We'll bring it to you, and uh, we give us a good chance to talk about it here on The Bill Press Show as we join you online, coast-to-coast coast online on YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show, coast-to-coast coast on Free Speech TV as well, and out in the greater Chicago area. Hello, WCPT, and all of you great fans of WCPT there in studio with us. Fresh from his uh, tour of duty on Air Force One yesterday, Jordan Fabian, who covers the White House for the Hill at the White House or where the, wherever the president goes. And he was uh, out of the VFW yesterday talking, Jordan, about fake news. The president said, whatever you see or hear, it's not really happening. 
I'm paraphrasing, but it was close to that. Don't believe Here the crap you see from these people, the fake news. Right, there he is. And you were there, and actually some people got heckled there? They? Not him, but media. Yeah, some of the uh, veterans in the crowd sort of turned to the press pen and, and booed and hiss. And actually the VFW had to issue a statement afterwards saying, you know, we don't support that. Uh, you know, we... We use the media all the time to get our message out about veterans' issues, and and uh, you know we, we support these organizations, and and therein lies the the problem for this administration when they decide to say everything the press writes is fake when they have a message to get out when they have something to say uh, it's they're undermining the very uh, you know organizations they need to get that message out so uh, that, that's a problem for them. Yeah, a uh, problem for the administration and a problem for any organization like the like the like the VFW, right? Yes. Uh, and uh, I I thought it was sort of left up in the air when he did say that. Uh, um, I just wrote yeah. What you're seeing and reading is not happening. So right. when he's <laughs> does that apply to everything he says? Right. I mean, what he says. We've got a great relationship with Vladimir Putin, or these tariffs are really going to help everybody in the long run. You're not supposed to believe it? Yeah, I mean, again, this is one of the clearest articulations yet, I think, of President Trump's worldview, where he is trying now uh, on so many fronts, like you point out, to sort of impose his version on of reality on everybody else. And uh, it, it's a constant day-by-day effort to sort of blanket the airwaves with this stuff. And uh, look, it's... Again, you know, I think it might maybe might serve him in the short term with his supporters, but over the long term, if when he when he needs you know America, you know maybe in a crisis to to believe the things he says, uh, he's really squandering a lot of that credibility. Well, a, t- a case on in point uh, before we get to the tapes with everybody's talking about the tariffs yesterday. I thought it was really kind of surprising. So the president puts these tariffs. Particularly several countries, but particularly on China, and and American farmers are hurting, and they've said this, and they've come forward, and they said this is really this is hurting us, uh, and the response is not to reduce the tariffs, but to give the farmers twelve billion dollars in extra subsidies to make up for the money that they're losing because of the tariffs that he put in place. Um, why does that make sense? Well, I, I've talked to uh, some you, some of your more establishment Republican types, and this is pretty much antithetical to everything they believe in, which is, you know, big government, uh, you know, bailing out private companies. And it's happening because, like you said, these farmers are hurting. They're being hurt by their ability not to uh, export things like soybeans and sorghum over to China, which is one of their biggest mm-hmm. export markets. And yeah. I, there I, seems to be this insatiable market for soybeans in yeah. China for some reason. I and, find and, uh, you know, it's it's an odd situation because uh, on one hand, you have the Trump administration handing out this aid uh, for, you know, I think economic purposes, but also political purposes. The president loves to talk about how he believes that China is deliberately targeting farmers because they tend to support the president more. But really, I think what these farmers want to do is sell their products. They don't want necessarily government aid. I mean, they just want to be able to sell their products in export markets. So uh, there's no sign that this trade war is letting off. So the question for the administration is how long 
is this aid going to last? Once the $12 billion is, is exhausted, will there be a second round? It, th those answers we asked officials on the plane on Air Force One, and they didn't really know the answers. So uh, this is going to be a situation, I think, that lasts for at least weeks, if not months. But also, who decides, just the logistics, the, the practicality of it, who decides what farmers get how much money and when, right? Yeah. It's, Based it, on... Uh, they have to wait till the crops, you know, are ripe, and then they try to sell them and can't sell them, and then they have to show, well, we could have sold them for this. You know what I mean? And this, this is not. This is pretty complicated. Yeah, and, and I, I'm not privy to all the details of the program, but I know the Department of Agriculture administers it, and there's certain criteria that need to be met for for to receive aid. So there is some sort of process in place, but. Um, Do, I can't imagine money, anyone's very happy about it. Is this money that the that the government that the Department of Agriculture already has, or does Congress have to pass a bill for this? I don't think Do there's know? a new appropriation. No, this is not a new appropriation. No, right. So existing funds, basically. Yes. Yeah, but you're right. They're going to run out, and if the tariffs are still in place, most likely down the road. Yeah, we're going to have to see more on and, top and, of and it. And this is what I think a lot of people were warning about with regard to a trade war. And it's interesting, too, that it's coming in advance of, of the midterm elections when Republicans were urging President Trump to, to talk about the tax cuts, talk about the tax cuts that are one big legislative win. And now he's la launched further into this trade war with China. We have the EU commissioner coming today. The president says he wants to ramp up tariffs there. And also he has this very controversial dealing with President Vladimir Putin of Russia. So you have all of this coming to a head at the same time. We had uh, heard from a, one farmer this morning. Uh, she was on an ABC podcast uh, yesterday, a farmer by the name of Megan Kaiser from out in Missouri. It's pretty scary for any business to look at um, that the crop that's in the ground right now might be worth 18% less than, uh, you know, how we had managed when we put it in the ground. Yeah, you can see. I mean, there's a lot of farmers in that, in that same position, right? Uh, they've already got the crop in the ground. Here it comes, and they the 18 20% less than they would have made on that same crop last year. Yeah, for a lot of people, their livelihoods are at stake, and this is this is real um, tough situation for them. And you know, thinking back to the the campaign, there was this whole debate about whether to take the president literally or seriously when he threatened things like trade wars. And and now we're seeing, at least on this issue, that uh, it was. Smart to take him literally because uh, this is what he said he wanted to do, and it's playing out now in real time. Uh, as you pointed out, the president of the EU is coming to the White House today. I saw something. That I wasn't sure who said this, but a quote that is not going to be a good meeting or a, 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 a nice meeting or something. Um, what can we expect? Uh, this is, this is on t coming after uh, the NATO summit. Uh, coming after his comments about the EU and coming after his threat to place tariffs on foreign cars. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I think trade is going to be the number one issue on the agenda today, and it's going to be a contentious conversation if the passes prologue. You saw how the president spoke about his NATO allies when he was over there in Brussels uh, a couple of weeks ago. He said in the interim that the EU is the U.S.'s foe. That they are our enemy, basically, mm -hmm. uh, at yeah. least when it comes to identify to them as a foe. Yes. Right. So uh, you know he complains constantly about he, how he believes the EU is ripping off the United States on trade, and and so I I 
would imagine that a lot of that is going to seep into the conversation today with the EU commissioner. And, uh, you know, they're going to appear before the cameras today and we'll see we'll see how the body language is. We'll see what they have to say. Right. Uh, there's no joint news conference between the two of them. Right. No, but no. they're doing some sort of uh, you know, photo opportunity where the president uh, loves to take questions in that kind of situation. So. Right. We'll see what happens. Doesn't he also in a situation like that? I mean, after having said some tough things that when he finally is face to face then maybe. Um, even even with uh, Theresa May was that way in Europe that he says, oh, we're best of friends and we've never had a better meeting. Our relationship has never been stronger. Yeah. You might expect to hear that today too, right? Absolutely, yeah. He, he the, You make a good point, which is that he makes a lot of these sort of threats and and, and, uh, and negative comments about people when, when they're not in front of him and, and maybe in private to his advisors or, or friends, but when they're together, he tries to lower the temperature a little bit, so... We, we might hear some of that, but we'll, again, uh, the situation's been so heated that I, I imagine there might be some barbs in there. Right. Out of the blue this week, the president tweeting, all caps, a threat to Iran. Where did this come from and where is it leading? I mean, it's it was so reminiscent to me, must have been to you, of a year ago saying, hell, fire and fury. North Korea is going to experience fire and fury like nobody ever has before. He said almost the same thing about Iran. So do we just sort of shrug it off, or is it more serious than that? What are they telling you? I, I think the people I talk to are increasingly hesitant to describe what the president is actually thinking. <laughs> um, because people don't – I mean, there's really – there's a lot of uncertainty. It's hard to tell. Yeah, in, in it some must be tough on them. Right? Yes, so uh, – you know, the, the, the line that's used frequently is the tweet speaks for itself. And that's a lot of what I was getting when I asked about that tweet. And look, I mean, he's he's clearly taking a more confrontational stance toward Iran, pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. He's he's unhappy with uh, the, the rhetoric and, and the actions coming out of, of Tehran when it comes to not only the nuclear nuclear program, but what they're doing in Syria and with regard to Israel. So. Uh, that, that's what we saw the president say. If you take the North Korea example, we did not end up in a nuclear war. In fact, we ended up in a new uh, right. negotiation with them. So I, it's hard to predict what's going to happen, but uh, clearly he's raising the temperature on Iran right now. If you take the North Korean example, he'll be sitting down with President Rouhani, invite, inviting him <laughs> to the White House a, a year from now. Right. I mean, he, well, he has talked frequently about how he would like a new Iran deal, and I have no indication that he wants or is actually committed to doing that, but you can't rule anything out, so uh, we'll have to see how it plays out. How much um, advanced preparation and thought and planning had gone into the announcement that we're going to take the security clearances away from uh, six uh, Obama officials? I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, there, there's I, I if if you sort of take it, what it what happened like afterwards, it, yeah, and you hear what the what administration officials have said about it. There doesn't appear to have been a, a whole lot of advanced planning <laughs> because they can't even get their story straight. Yesterday, for example, uh, one aide on Air Force One said that the mechanism has been put into place to begin removing these clearances, which, by the way, we're not even sure if half the people they listed even have clearances anymore. And then you, at, back at the White House, you have Sarah Sanders saying, no, we're still exploring our options. So uh, there's a lot of confusion there, and and that appears that indicates to me 
that this is something that kind of came out of left field and they're trying to backfill, which happens so often these days. It looked like a spur-of-the-moment decision, yes. right? Rand Paul tweets it out, and then the president hears it and says, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Mm -hmm. So, And all these people that he has criticized in the past in that interview with Jeff Glor of CBS News, you know, we talked about Brennan and Comey and some others, Clapper. Uh, they've, they've, they've been critical of him in the past. Uh, and um, and the, the president, I think, without a lot of consultation, just said, okay, let's do it. So we don't know whether this is going to happen or not is the bottom line. huh? No, we don't know. <laughs> like so many other things, we, have, we don't know. The big crisis yesterday, or the New York Times points out, not yesterday, but I guess on – when the president was leaving for Europe, he gets on Air Force One, and he threw an absolute tantrum because one of the TVs was turned on, tuned into CNN in Melania's cabin. CNN. You were on Air Force One yesterday. The rule is all the TVs Fox are Fox News. Fox News. Yes. His and channel. Yes, I mean, he look. This is a, again. It goes back to the discussion we had at the beginning about uh, you know don't believe what you read in here. The president wants to live in his own reality, and and a lot of Fox News plan, uh, programming plays into that. So that's what he wants to be surrounded with. I mean, he does he does get angry when he sees this negative coverage, and he, and a lot of times he doesn't want to see it. So uh, th this is the world that the president is living in right now, and he doesn't want Melania to see it. No, yeah, well, he doesn't okay. want to be anywhere near it. I don't think. Okay, um, is this release of the tape? Uh, between uh, Donald Trump and candidate Trump and Michael Cohen back in 2016. How big a problem for the White House do you think it is? Is it going to dominate the discussion today at the briefing? What briefing? Oh, well, not announced <laughs> yet, but <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> uh, or dominate the, you know, the conversations? Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly it's one of the top stories right now. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're watching right now in the studio Fox News and CNN, and, and it was the the first story for yeah for almost the entire time we're in here. So, yeah, you got to imagine it's going to be number one. But as far as what will it have legs, I still think it it, it really kind of depends on the entirety of that conversation. The, the legal danger for President Trump here is whether he said anything that would make this a campaign finance violation. So talked in any way about how buying the story of Karen McDougal, who alleged that she had a relationship with Trump uh, you know, outside of his marriage, uh, would, would help his campaign. Uh, I think from what we've heard, there wasn't a whole lot of that. What we do know is that he, was, he appeared to at least be aware that this – a, that this whole allegation was out there, and B, that there was some kind of effort to, to squelch it from going public. And and that is significant because uh, if he knew about this effort with with Karen McDougal, there, you would reason that he would also know about efforts ongoing with Stormy Daniels a few weeks before the election. And that is, of course, embroiled in a whole slew of litigation, and, and that could present a lot of legal problems to the president. So uh, while this tape not, might not be the smoking gun— it could be the jumping off point for a lot of other problems for him. Yeah. Uh, Peter, let's listen to this. This is the first part of the tape where um, after Michael Cohen, and it's pretty clear, as we said earlier, that this is this is the heat of the campaign. So Donald Trump's really, really busy. Obviously, he's the nominee. Michael Cohen, his attorney, gets him for like three minutes, and he's got like five things he's got to get some quick answers on. And they talk about 
um, having to, there's a big dispute over whether or not the New York Times is going to be able to get the divorce papers from Ivana. They deal with that. Trump's having some side conversation, it sounds like, with his daughter or somebody. And then Cohen finally gets him to focus on, we need to set up a company to deal with this. Anything that David is taking care of, David, sorry about the last name, it's his, not mine, Pecker, who's the owner of the National Enquirer, uh, and so it goes from there. I need to open up a company for the transfer of all of that info regarding our friend David, you know, so that I'm going to do that right away. I've actually come up and I've spoken, and I've spoken to Alan Weisselberg about how to set the whole thing up uh, with so what are we funding. The, uh, yes. So, as you point out, I mean, the one thing we can take away from that is he knows who David is. He knows what it's all about. Yeah. Because he, he doesn't say what or, you know, who, who's that or what, what are you talking about? I mean, it's all. Yeah. He kind of rolls with the conversation. So right. that would appear to indicate that, yes, he knew about it. Our friend David. Yes. Right. So then the next part, and this is the tricky part, which is uh, how are we going to make this payment when it comes to financing? Listen carefully. Uh, the question is, does Donald Trump candidate say <coughs> payer in cash? You tell me what you think. When it comes time for the financing, which will be listen, what financing? We'll have to pay you. So no, 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 no. I got no, no, no. So comes to the financing. What financing? Well, we're going to have to pay. And then there's something there, right? Cash. You certainly hear the word. Well, pay her in cash or don't pay her in cash. And then Cohen says, no, 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 no. And that's that's kind of where the dispute between the attorneys for both sides is right now. And it's a, I think it's a bit of a silly dispute. I, I don't think it really. There's no legal significance whether you pay the person in cash or or with a check or or with some other means. The, the the issue is legally, was this done to help the Trump campaign? And, and if it was, and, and and can you prove it? Right. And so if, th- if so, then without reporting it. It becomes a violation, right? But but I, but uh, whether it was right? cash or check, there was it wasn't Got reported. It. So yeah. that, so the the means of payment. I mean, cash would sort of suggest that they wanted to hide it, right? But it would suggest that you wouldn't know that. Uh, and with all the, the the odd ways that the, the Trump organization operates, I mean, who knows? Maybe they wanted to put this on the books for some reason or another. Um, but look, I, again, the core legal issue here is whether you can prove that this was done to help the Trump campaign. And I, if that is all that is on the tape, I don't think you have that right now. But it does open other questions about this payoff and as as well as the Stormy Daniels situation. And doesn't this? I mean, if, if nothing else, it establishes. Uh, and by the way, just to, 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 to button up that point, so Rudy Giuliani says no. The tape says don't pay cash, and Lenny Davis, um, Michael Cohen's attorney, says no. The tape says. Pay cash, and the only people that pay cash, he said last night on CNN, are mobsters and drug dealers. So that's what they are debating. But doesn't if nothing else, doesn't this tell the White House that Michael Cohen is no longer on your side? It does say that, and it's a clear signal from Michael Cohen that he is willing to cooperate with with the prosecutors, no doubt. And and it also says that. You know, if he has a recording of this conversation, what other recordings does Michael Cohen have? And that's a that's a question I think the White House should be worried about. And Lanny Davis says lots of them. 
Right. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Again. Uh, apparently there are 12 tapes. We when it comes to Lanny Davis and Rudy Giuliani, it's hard to take the word for it on anything. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see. What? We'll see what they actually have. Well, you then know? you got Michael Avenatti yes. in, the thing, <laughs> in the mix, too, though. That's the Stormy Daniels matter. Yes. But uh, it, 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 it's, it's quite a cast of characters. <laughs> Isn't it, though? Yeah, indeed. Um, so how was the book party last night? Sean Spicer's book party? Oh, yeah. You think he invited members of the White House press corps? <laughs> <laughs> well, to, <laughs> well, why not? You had such a great relationship, right? Oh uh, yeah, as detailed in the book. Did, I mean, yes. Did you uh, did you see uh, um, John Carl's review or read about? Yes, it? Yes, I, I read it uh, yesterday morning at, at Andrews Air Force Base before getting on the plane, and uh, it was one of the one of the most uh, one of the most interesting pieces I've read in a long time. <laughs> Well, what got me is that so uh, Sean Spicer had Peter. You had the inaccuracies that that uh, John uh, points out, right? In yeah, the yeah. I'm pulling them up really quickly because you know, remember this is a this is a I would say a, a anticipated book, right? So you can imagine that they would have people checking it and fact checkers and all that. But uh, just uh, I'll read really, really quickly through this thing. Uh, Mr. Spicer, this is from John Carl. Mr. Spicer has not been well served by the book's fact checkers and copy editors. He refers to the author of the infamous Trump dossier as Michael Steele, who is in truth the former chairman of the Republican National Committee, not the British ex-spy Christopher Steele. He recounts a reporter asking Mr. Obama a question at a White House press conference in 1999, a decade before Mr. Obama was elected. And he also talks about how he writes glowingly about his former boss, Mark Foley, who had to leave in disgrace because he was sexually harassing young male pages which he in doesn't, the house. Which he doesn't he mention. He doesn't even bring that up. Yeah. I, what I'll say is it, it, that is perfectly befitting of Sean Spicer's tenure as White House <laughs> Press Secretary. Yeah. That right there is a perfect distillation of his tenure. Uh, and the uh, uh, the party last night. So the party tomorrow night is at the Trump International Hotel by invitation only. Uh, the party last night was down at the Wharf, Sean Spicer's book party. Um, you know when I had my, when my book came out from the left, A Life in the Crossfire. Just had a party, invited friends. Just come if you want to buy a copy of the book. Fine if you don't, that's fine too. But come and have a glass of wine. No, Sean Spicer last night, thousand dollars to get in. Mm. And you got a badge that said press secretary. Crazy. If you paid five hundred dollars, you got two tickets, and you got a badge that said deputy press secretary. Oh my! If you paid two fifty, you got a badge that said assistant press secretary. Didn't the president say something about monetizing? Uh, yes, and this <laughs> question was actually asked on Air Force One yesterday. Oh really? We, uh, yes. It, it, during the gaggle, yeah, we asked Hogan Gidley uh, why. Is Sean Spicer allowed to profit off of his government service, whereas apparently James Comey is not Good allowed for you. to? And, yeah. and uh, there was wasn't really a great answer to that question. <laughs> so sad for them. Okay. Well, we can't let you go without pointing out that it was our friend right here, Jordan Fabian, last Wednesday at the news conference at the briefing, when Sarah Huckabee Sanders was doing what she often does, which is try to shut people down, not take a follow up, not answer a question, and move on. And Haley Jackson was trying to follow up on an important question, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders was trying to get off, get away from her, and come to you, and come to you, and she finally did come to you. And uh, uh, I was there. I held my breath, and you did the right thing. You said, "Haley, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, finish your question?" Which, which really 
Sarah Huckabee Sanders couldn't do anything but let her have her follow-up. So I just want to say good for you. Thanks, and I, Bill. And I wish more reporters at the briefing room would do that. And, I can't uh, tell you how excited Bill was that you did that because <laughs> Bill has been talking about this. I've for been talking about people now. should do that for so long. Yeah, and you you did. No, yeah. seriously, that took a that took a lot of guts. Yeah, bravo, great. bravo. Uh, and did you get any flack for it? No, not yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you been called on since? <laughs> uh, well, I, I missed the briefing on Monday, so uh, well, I guess we'll have to test it out later this week. Yeah, if there is <laughs> yeah. one, if there is one today. Right. Well, right. you made us all proud. Okay. Thanks, Thanks Jordan. Bill. Thanks for coming in today. Follow Jordan at the Hill, thehill.com. Uh, oh, things are heating up on the question about what documents is the White House going to release for Brett Kavanaugh, Matt Ford. Uh, from New Republic has been following that and joins us next here uh, on the Bill Press Show. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. All right, all right. Wednesday, July 25. How about it? Lots going on here. But uh, fear not, we will keep you up to date on all the news of the day. The Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and our studio on Capitol Hill, Brought to you today by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the good men and women of the UFCW. Under President Mark Perrone, they are a proud union family that feeds, serves, and provides for America's hardworking families. Uh, those good people who uh, check you out at the grocery stores and stock the shelves uh, and serve us uh, proudly every single day. Check out their website at ufcw.org. And we welcome to the program from New Republic, um, covering mainly uh, law and order and justice department issues, Matt Ford. Hello, Matt. Nice to see you. Great to be back. Um, boy, here's a legal issue for you. I don't know whether you know about this. Um, I mentioned it a little earlier, but the uh, and at, here in Washington, D.C., we have this local government system, the city council, uh, and, of course, the federal government kind of controls what happens in the district, but then there are also these neighborhood advisory commissions. Mm. You don't pay that much attention to them that often. Maybe we should because last week a neighborhood advisory commission here in Washington, D.C. voted unanimously to revoke the Trump International Hotel's liquor license <laughs> on the grounds that it doesn't comply with D.C. rules. And the D.C. liquor license rules state clearly that whoever gets a liquor license must be, quote, of good character. <laughs> and so they say, quote, here's the chairman, Bennett Hilly, quote, it is our considered view that Donald Trump, the true and actual owner of the Trump International Hotel, is not a person of good character <laughs> and therefore doesn't meet the D.C. code requirements. Well, there uh, you go. It, you know, you Shut him down. I just want to be very clear here, by the way. I am in no way um, uh, a supporter of Donald Trump's, but uh, all my favorite bars are run with people with very bad character, right? So, like, just because they have good character run a bar, that probably sounds like it's a pretty terrible bar. I mean, right. All the best bars I know are run by people who don't always stay towards the true and narrow. Yeah. Those are the best bars. Absolutely. <laughs> Not to give Trump any kind of credit or out here, but like there are a lot of other reasons to, to dislike him. Yeah. A uh, person of bad character? Yes. Number one, Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. There we go. Now, so shut her down, some people might say about the Trump Hotel, 
or lock her up. We heard that again yesterday. Of all places, it was a high school gathering of conservative high school students. Uh, at uh, They were meeting at George Washington University here in Washington for a conference. And their keynote speaker is the Attorney General of the United States who steps up to the podium when the students start chanting, lock her up. And um, you would think that he might say, oh, wait a minute, come on, you know, that, let's not go there, da, da, da. No, like Michael Flynn, mm-hmm. he just joins the crowd. Here he is. Lock her up. <laughs> Well, so rat, a rat, I heard that a long time over mm. the last campaign. <laughs> what was he doing there in the first place? That's a very good question. You know, he's the Attorney General of the United States. Uh, you know, he's used to speaking in front of sheriff's associations, law enforcement groups, uh, prosecutors' organizations. Speaking in front of a group of conservative high school students is, is kind of a strange politicization <laughs> of his office. Yeah. And one of a continuing series of steps for him in that uh, front. Yeah, and, an, and another, and the message that he's sending to these kids, not to make too much of it, but lock her up, lock her up, like for what? Right? Yeah. I mean, we don't do that like in this country, right? No. And it's a missed opportunity for him to note that. That would have been a great chance to educate those students and say, well, wait a second here. In this country, everybody's entitled to due process, everybody's entitled to a fair hearing of the facts. I think at minimum he missed that opportunity. You, you might have thought that was that was a, a message that he could have delivered there, mm-hmm. right? That's this is not who we are as a people. Absolutely. Okay? Yeah, but uh, what do you expect from uh, Jeff Sessions? So Matt, uh, you've been following with uh, with Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Democrats, for the most part, have so far uh, refused to meet with him, uh, and because they say we want to get some answers about. We want to see all the documents first. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what documents are they asking for? Or why are these important? So the ones that they're most sticking point in with the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee are staff secretary documents. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh worked in the George W. Bush administration. He worked in the White House. And as staff secretary, uh, it's kind of a sort of gatekeeper <laughs> role. He sees all the paperwork that flows through the Oval Office. Uh, now, Republicans look at that and they say Rob that Porter was the staff secretary for Donald Trump forced to leave because of these allegations of domestic abuse. But that's the job that Brett Kavanaugh had. Exactly. And it's an important job. Um, it's, yeah. it's one for keeping the White House sort of orderly and functioning. Uh, now, Republicans say, well, you know, his role wasn't really to sign off or approve on anything. Uh, it was just to make sure things ended up where they should. So there's no need to access all those documents. And Democrats come back with two points. They come back with, one, this is a lifetime appointment. You know, this is one of the most crucial posts in the country. There's no reason to withhold documents on this front. And second, he had input on some of these. We know that already. He saw documents related to the torture memos, for example. Uh, And there's some sticking points because the the Congress has already, especially Democrats on Congress, have had problems with the George W. Bush administration, judicial nominees, and the torture memos. They approved to a lifetime position a man named Jay Bybee for the Ninth Circuit seat in about 2003. And then a year later, they found out that he was the author of some of these torture memos that he had played a key role in shaping the administration's policy. And a lot of Democrats who voted for him said that they wouldn't have done that if they had known he played that role. So now Democrats are looking at Kavanaugh and hoping, we don't want to come back years later and find out that we should have known something at the time that would have prevented us or made a, get, built a stronger argument against him taking a role in the high court. Uh, was Kavanaugh ever in the White House counsel office? I don't believe so. Um, so he his White House of, role was staff secretary. Yeah. He played a lot of roles in, in sort of other Justice Department 
uh, roles, and he was most notably um, part of Ken Starr's team in the independent counsel investigation. And he is also, a, oh, I know, I think it was during a panel or something. He's in, in, on the issue of executive authority, executive mm-hmm. power, uh, is where he has, he's on the record, right? Basically saying uh, that the president should not, that, that the decision to force Nixon to hand over the Watergate papers mm-hmm. was erroneous. Well, he suggested that, and that's not a suggestion that we hear that often. Yeah, you know, we think a lot of people think of Watergate as a clash between Congress and the president, but the Supreme Court's role in getting those tapes released in that case, Nixon v. United States, that was a big role in uh, Nixon's eventual downfall. Uh, So, for him to call that decision into question uh, really raises a lot of questions about how he views executive power, and I think that's going to be one of the things that uh, Democrats focus a lot on in the confirmation hearing, especially when you have a president. Uh, who is embroiled in his own scandals. Right. So then he has also said, related, uh, that um, a president should not, I believe this is in writing, that a president should not be distracted. He's Mm -hmm. a very busy person, should not be distracted by such pesky problems as lawsuits or subpoenas Mm -hmm. or having to testify, um, which is an issue that's very much at question right now with the Trump administration. Right, and conservatives are trying to get ahead, out ahead of uh, Democrats on that one. They've looked at that. It's a Law Review article he wrote in 2009. That's it, right. And they look at it and they say, <laughs> well, look, he wrote these as a series of broad suggestions on the presidency. Um, and he specified in that part specifically that he wasn't talking necessarily about how the courts should do it. He said that Congress should step in, relieve some of these burdens from the president, and make him sort of temporarily immune to lawsuits and criminal processes and things like that so that he can focus on the nature of his office. Whether or not you think the merits of that are a good idea are, are, are up for debate, I, I personally might be disinclined to think so. Um, but they would say that, look, this is just something he's saying Congress could do. Um, but what really stands out, and I think this is something Democrats are going to hone in on, is the logic behind it, this sort of deference, this in some cases extreme deference to the idea that the president's person is sort of elevated and that his concerns place him above the ordinary legal processes that you and I follow. He, I mean, in effect, he is saying the president is above the law. In a way, yes. I mean, at least for a temporary basis. Yeah. Um, but still, that's, that's sort of a striking idea in, in a you know, constitutional democracy like ours. Well, and particularly relevant, again, when you have a president, the president who has nominated him to the Supreme Court, who makes the same argument, or his attorneys make the same argument, when it comes to Robert Mueller. I Absolutely. Mean, um, they still haven't, it's been over a year, they still haven't agreed for the president, that the president would sit down with Mueller either voluntarily or they've indicated that he wouldn't answer a subpoena either. Mm-hmm. So that question, if, if that, if here, right? Mm-hmm. But if that question is raised, that will probably go to the Supreme Court. Yes, you, assuming right? Trump doesn't just fire Mueller outright. Right. Um, but if there's a pushback, if, if uh, you know, yeah. Trump says, OK, no interview. Mueller says, OK, grand jury subpoena. That will almost certainly be resolved by the high court. Right. Um, and it'll be basically a repeat of the Watergate tapes case. Exactly. And um, if Kavanaugh's confirmed before then, mm-hmm. he'll have a chance to rule on it. He's got a chance to rule on it. Right. Yeah. So he's got a built in conflict. Uh, well, it's certainly something the Democrats are going to want to explore. And, you know, one of the problems with, with judicial nominations is that they're sort of a kabuki theater because the nominees, Democrat and Republican alike, to be fair, 
will decline to say how they will rule on mm -hmm. future cases. Mm -hmm. And there are good reasons for that. Uh, but at the same time, it makes it hard to evaluate really what the judge will do from the bench other than looking at his past statements. And those past statements here cause a lot of concern for Democrats. Now, Mitch McConnell has been very uh, upset this week, uh, and has, as has the White House. Sarah Huckabee Sanders started her briefing on Monday um, by scolding the Democrats for not meeting with um, scheduling meetings with Brett Kavanaugh. In fact, Mitch McConnell, we played a, a, a bite yesterday where he said, you know, basically, how dare the Democrats refuse to sit down with a no, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. How dare Democrats refuse to sit down with a qualified nominee to the Supreme Court? How can they say that with a straight face? I mean, it's it's really impressive um, because they did the exact same thing to Merrick Garland, uh, and refused I to meet with him. Refused to meet with him, uh, yeah, and that was a really striking thing. It's not just that they wouldn't hold a vote on him; that's Congress's Senate's prerogative. That's their power. Refusing to even meet with him is what helped transcend that from just partisan politics to almost an insult. As I recall. And I'll correct myself tomorrow if I'm wrong, but as, or right now if I'm if you know that I'm wrong. As I recall, even Ch Chuck Grassley, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, did not meet with. Eric I, be I believe that's correct. My understanding is that none of the Republican senators did. But I, 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 you know, my not even a meeting. Again, you're right. Hearing, we know they didn't hold a hearing. Right. Vote, we certainly know they didn't hold a vote. Right. Right. But even a meeting, they refused to meet with him, and now. They're blasting Democrats and attacking Democrats for doing the very same thing when it comes to Brett Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. And Democrats, you know, they say they have a pretty good reason not to meet with him. They say they won't meet with him until they have all the documents available. So this is not just some sort of, you know, insult or anything like that here. Um, they have a genuine reason to not want to meet with him right off the bat. I mean, that's a that's a real thing. I mean, the, yeah. the, the Merrick Garland thing was just purely politics. Right. There's no other way around They didn't say, give it. us this and we'll right. have a meeting. They just right. say, they we're not right going to have they're a meeting. They're not going to do it. Right. And, like, Democrats have a leg to stand on. Whether or not they're selling it very well is yet to be seen. But, but they have a real leg to stand on here. Yeah. And there is a report this morning that um, Kavanaugh, I believe, himself uh, – no, I, no, it was the White House attorney, mm -hmm. Don McGahn, who was meeting with Senate Republicans yesterday to discuss what documents were going to turn over and which ones were not. So mm -hmm. um, the, the at least the Democrats have scored to the point where they're making them squirm and consider they're going to have to release something. Right. And, you know, for the Democrats, that's kind of impressive because they have, you know, the Republicans in many ways hold all the cards here. Um, since the filibuster is effectively a dead letter, uh, there's no actual procedural mechanism Democrats can use on their own uh, to stop Kavanaugh. So the fact that they're even able to get any concessions at all is is, is quite impressive. Can they delay? Um, how, how long can they delay uh, a vote on Kavanaugh? On, could they delay it until after the midterms? Uh, they could try. Um, one of the real questions here is how Mitch McConnell wants to time it. Uh, He's sent some suggestions toward Democrats that he might be inclined to sort of push the date closer to the day of the midterms themselves, which, you know, for red state Democrats would make it harder for them to go out and campaign, uh, you know, something that, that, that he says could sort of, you know, it, or it, it suggests that it could indicate the balance of the, those races. Um, whether or not that's, that's, a, that's a sort of a bluff or not kind of remains to be seen, but uh, McConnell can schedule a vote on this whenever he likes. Is there any evidence at all empirical evidence that, that people could point to that how you vote on a Supreme Court nominee has a big impact or any impact at all 
on getting reelected to the U.S. Senate? Uh, I'm not aware of any data on that for legislators. It's um, just it's, people just accept it as a fact, and I always question it as a fact. One thing that's really striking is is when you look back at the 2016 data, how many voters suggested that it was a key influence uh, for their presidential votes. Um, and we know for from the Republican side, at least, the evangelicals number one, a huge factor, and sort of the alliance that Trump made with the conservative legal movement. I mean, it's uh, one of the really striking things about Trump's administration is that on almost every policy aspect, he's willing to sort of upend it, do his own thing, you know, throw the playbook out the window, not with judicial nominations. This is going essentially by the book as it would go for a, a, a Jeb Bush presidency, a Marco Rubio presidency. This is, the, he's, he's kept himself extraordinarily restrained. I, I, just, I just have the belief, I, I'm of the belief that you could not, not you personally, but <laughs> one could not tell, show me one voter in West Virginia who's going to vote against Joe Manchin, for example, because were he to vote against Brett Kavanaugh? Mm -hmm. Same thing in North Dakota with Heidi Heitkamp. I don't know that it filters down and it's, it's uh, you know, that has that kind of an impact, let alone enough voters in either of those states to uh, kill their chances of getting reelected. Mm-hmm. What but, the, but but people just accept it as a fact and 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 act accordingly. Well, we've seen some indications too that that red state senators are trying to sort of outflank the Republicans on this. Uh, you know, one of the issues that that Joe Manchin raised in his sort of initial wave of statements after the Kavanaugh nomination was announced was health care. You know, an issue that's very important to West Virginians and oh, Amer I mean Americans sure. in every state. Yeah. Um, but so he put that front and center on his focus, and so that gives him the chance to say, look, I wasn't satisfied. That that Kavanaugh will you know rule in the best interests of West Virginians, that's why I voted against him. I'm not saying that that's how Manchin will necessarily do it, but you can see them sort of building a case to say, look, this is the, I, I have legitimate concerns about this nominee. This wasn't just partisan politics. If the president wants to send us another nominee, we'll consider them. Matt Ford covers legal issues for New Republic here with us in studio. NewRepublic.com uh, is the website. So. Uh, in terms of uh, the courts and uh, um, the focus on the courts, it's going to, starting next Tuesday, it's all going to be in Alexandria, Virginia, in the trial of Paul Manafort. Yep. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to see how it unfolds. Um, we've seen some indications that Mueller is calling witnesses who will testify as to Manafort's financial transactions. We haven't really seen any indications yet that he's going to call anybody who will testify directly to sort of the Russia, uh, Russia-related necessarily aspect of the investigation, the core um, interference claims. Uh, but this is a big moment. This is the president's former campaign chairman. This is the man who helped navigate him through the, the sort of convention process, who helped put down a possible conservative revolt. Um, it's a big deal, and it's something that I think we're losing focus of in, in the Trump era, the idea that you know, at a bare minimum, if you've set aside all the Russian investigation stuff, uh, this is a president who had his, his campaign chairman engaged in what appears to be some pretty shady financial behavior. I mean, the equivalent would be were Hillary Clinton in the White House to have John Podesta in the dock, right, right. being charged with serious crimes right. on trial less than two years after she got elected. Or, right. or if Barack Obama had David Axelrod put on trial. Um, you know, it, it's something yeah. that, that, you know, I think we, we lose sight of uh, with the news cycle these days, but it's really quite an extraordinary moment. And the charges he faces in Alexandria 
are money laundering? Yeah, they're mostly related to the payments that he took overseas, working for you know pro-Kremlin Ukrainian political parties, and then his efforts to sort of funnel that money back to the United States without paying any taxes on it. What relationship does this trial have to the investigation of uh, Robert Mueller's investigation of Donald Trump for collusion or obstruction of justice? Well, if you're looking at it just at the documents available, there is none. Uh, but what most legal experts think, in fact, probably what nearly every legal expert thinks, is that what Mueller is trying to do is flip Paul Manafort, that he's trying to put as much legal pressure on him as he can so that he'll testify to any knowledge of other crimes that he's had. We've seen him do this with uh, Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor. We've seen him do this with a coterie of other low-ranking Trump officials. Uh, and Manafort was probably the biggest catch of all if he, if he manages to flip. But he hasn't flipped. If he were going to flip, wouldn't he have already flipped? Uh, I mean, then in normal circumstances, one would think so. Yeah, uh, I mean, the others, it didn't take that much, right? Again, as you mentioned, Papadopoulos, Flynn, uh, who else is cooperating? I don't know. That, but yeah. uh, Michael Cohen <laughs> certainly indicated that he is mm -hmm. ready to. But, but Manafort hasn't. So is Manafort, do you believe, the, re the why hasn't he? Is it because he knows he can count on a presidential pardon? There, I mean, that's one of the most prominent theories, um, and it certainly would explain a lot. Um, I mean, it's also possible that he's done nothing wrong and he's genuinely claiming his innocence. Um, but I think there's also sort of a back and forth here. Um, I think that, you know, as this continues, uh, the, the, the consequences of him being found guilty will become more and more clear. You know, he is a man who I believe is in his 70s, um, and the charges he's facing could see him in prison for, you know, at least two decades. Um, that is, once that sort of sinks in on somebody, that can be a powerful motivator. Right. And this is the first of two trials, right? He's got to face his trial in Washington, D.C. Yes. Federal court also. Yeah, he's, his residence is in, uh, is in Virginia, so that's why it's being tried in, across the Potomac here. Um, but he also faces some charges in, in the D.C. trial as well. Um, so his, those could go on right up until the midterms. Uh, yesterday, we mentioned uh, Michael Cohen. So uh, the big story of the day yesterday, uh, Michael Cohen's attorney, Lanny Davis, released to CNN the tape of the conversation between Michael Cohen and his then-client, Donald Trump, uh, discussing the necessity of setting up a separate company so they can handle payments to Karen McDougal mm -hmm. to keep her quiet and talk about the affair that they had before, uh, for, to keep her quiet for two weeks. This is a couple of weeks before the election. Yep. What's illegal? What's uh, uh, How much... Is it legal to tape that conversation? Was it legal to tape that conversation, A, and B, what are the legal implications here for Donald Trump? Well, whether it's legal to tape a conversation or not, Donald Trump appears to have waived privilege on sort of the lawyer-client uh, aspects of that. Uh, so it was legal for Michael Cohen to, to release that. Uh, as the tape, I believe New York is a one-party consent state, which is that one, you, you don't need the other person's consent to mm -hmm. record them. Okay. Uh, secretly. So the tape is legal. Now, is Donald Trump in any legal difficulty because of anything he said on the tape? Well, the tape, and this is one thing that they really stressed last night, the tape could be open to interpretation. Uh, and that's something that Rudy Giuliani is trying to play. He's trying to say that, look, by saying, you know, don't do it in cash, do it in check, it's all above board. Um, Lanny Davis was obviously challenging that last night. I mean, the bigger risk here is, is, is for Cohen. Uh, the 
prospect that some people have raised is that he might have violated campaign finance laws, that this effort to funnel $130,000 or however much money to Karen McDougal, uh, that that circumvented campaign finance laws and amounted to sort of an in-kind contribution. Uh, and that's what they used to, to get um, John Edwards, the idea that paying off somebody who has damaging information on you counts as a financial contribution towards your campaign. And if you go over the legal limit, you have a problem. But Donald Trump is the one who paid it, not Michael Cohen. Well, he reimbursed Michael Cohen for it. And so I'm not quite sure, clear it, how exactly that would play out. And I think that might fall into some more uh, open territory for them to explore. But for Cohen, I mean, it, he, he's facing that. Um, the feds are clearly looking at him on other matters. We don't really know what those matters are. Um, his financial background appears to be a little questionable at times. Uh, so that's going to raise some pressure on him to flip, and it increasingly looks like uh, he's going to try and cut a plea deal. Uh, boy, I got to tell you, I don't think you could read anything else into the release of that tape, <laughs> but a great big message, right, to Robert Mueller. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm ready. Here yeah. I am. I'm on your side now. I'm not on Donald Trump's side any longer. Hey, Matt, so good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Follow Matt and his good work at newrepublicnewrepublic.com. That's it for this Wednesday. The rest of the day is all yours. Make the most of it and come back and see us tomorrow. This we'll is the Bill Press Show.